大家晚上好，这里是正在为您直播。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello, I'm Ruud Kirchner. Thanks for joining me for another podcast on China's. Core executive or top leadership. This special series of interviews with leading China experts is part of our coverage of an international conference held at Merics in June, examining leadership styles, structures, and processes under Xi Jinping. With me is Professor Barry Norton of the University of California, San Diego. He is a specialist on the Chinese economy and. Economic policy. Welcome, Professor Norton. Now, economic policy is what we are talking about today. Of course, we want to tackle questions such as why does the Chinese leadership talk about economic reform but is so slow at implementing it? Now, let me start with something that、um, hopefully is an easy question. So, where's economic policy actually made in the State Council, in the Prime Minister's office, or at Xi Jinping's desk? This has been a huge change in China in the last few years because the answer is clearly. In the Communist Party secretary's office, and in particular in the leading small groups which have been established to shape economic policy. Now, the thing is, this is an enormous change in the way that things have traditionally been done in China. Traditionally, since 1980, in other words, for more than 30 years, the government has been the key locus for defining and carrying out economic policy. Ever since this was established for Zhao Ziyang in 1980. And what Xi Jinping has done has been to draw most of the decisive economic decision-making authority into these party leadership groups. The problem with that is that, of course, the premier and the state council is still the predominant agency for day-to-day -day management of the economy. So, what I've discovered in my work is a kind of disconnect between the policy formulation process and the actual policy implementation process, which are now more separate than they've ever been. One could argue that the concentration of power is actually a good thing, with economic policy in the hands of a powerful leader. But you don't think so, do you? That's a very useful hypothesis, and when she came to power, I think many people, in some cases, just believed that that would be the case, or at least, as in my case, were hopeful that that might be the case. And I think the problem is if we sort of carefully benchmark what we've seen against the. Really, rather bold ideas that were put forward in the third plenum policy document in November 2013. Now, that's a pretty high standard. We're asking them to do a lot, but by that high standard, we then can conclude pretty unambiguously that they've fallen quite a bit short. Now, we're not exactly sure what's happened, but I think we should say that if it were true that we had a powerful leader. Clearing the way for reform, then we'd expect to see that in these first couple of years, even if he hadn't made a lot of progress in getting toward the end state of economic reform, we'd still expect to see, well, maybe he's taken some risks and cleared away some interest group obstacles, or maybe he's created some institutions which still need to be enhanced in power and capability. Or maybe he's unleashed some productive potential in the economy, but it's still still too small to have an impact. So, in other words, there are all these sort of intermediate things that we would expect to see, even in a slow implementation scenario, 
and we really don't see those things. So the result is, uh, one of the reasons people like myself who are, I think I'm very much an optimist overall on the Chinese economy, but one of the reasons I feel more concerned and more worried right now is that we don't see a kind of unleashing of the potential benefits of reform. Most of the problems that were there two or three years ago are still there today, and in many cases, they're worse. So that's that's the concern. But what are the really specific problems? You know, there's lack of implementation. In your paper, you also point to uncertainty who makes specific decisions. Uh, what does that all that lead to? Well, it leads to a certain amount of paralysis among bureaucrats who, you know, facing complex problems find, well, they better not push too hard for anything. Uh, I mean, one example where it's really easy to see is that the U.S. and China were in negotiations for a bilateral investment treaty. And the core of that is essentially presenting a short list of sectors where you ask to be exempt from complete openness and complete competition. So it's, it's a very simple measure. As a negotiator, how bold are you willing to be? And what we saw is the Chinese negotiators were absolutely unwilling to make any kind of bold offer. And essentially it was because if there's going to be a bold offer, it's going to come from Xi Jinping. There's no point in me stepping forward, sticking my neck out, and making a bold offer. So I think that's a kind of a example that's very clear and concrete. But we see it in all the different policy arenas that I've tracked. Another good example is state enterprise reform, where there were some very bold ideas put forward in 2013, and in the end, a compromise document emerged that had very little content. And actually, much of the content that was in there is actually negative. It's actually moving backward. State-owned enterprise reform is a really good example because it started so promising back in 2013 after the third plenum. And then, as you say, there is this very lame document that came out last September. What happened in between? All that we know for sure is that about a year later, Xi Jinping made a series of decisions that ended up hobbling the process. He made some very strong pronouncements about the importance and indispensability of state enterprises, which of course would cause anybody to pull back. He accepted an early recommendation from the personnel department that actually lowered the income of the managers of state firms on the grounds that these state firms have a bureaucratic rank and that therefore the salary of the people of a state enterprise of a certain bureaucratic rank should not be higher than other bureaucrats of the same rank, which is, a, of course, a terrible decision because of what it does to incentives, but also creates confusion because it says all of a sudden the reform agenda here is going to be subordinate to these other agendas, to the anti-corruption agenda, to the egalitarianism agenda. And so it, it creates great confusion. Then having done that, He then authorized the creation of a new leadership small group, this one not controlled by himself, but actually back in the government's turf, but a group that was led and staffed by the same old people who had been running state enterprises for the past decade. And so it was predictable that this would come out with a very, very limited reform, and that's exactly what happened. 
This is Merrick's Experts. With me is Professor Barry Norton of the University of California, San Diego. We're discussing economic policy under Xi Jinping. Now then, how would you rate Xi Jinping's commitment to economic reform and maybe opening up the Chinese economy a bit more? You know, Xi Jinping is, uh, I think, one of these people who is political down to their fingernails in the sense that they just think probably in, in all their waking hours about power and how it's exercised and how it's effective and what they need to do. And I think that person understands that a much more efficient, highly functioning Chinese economy would be very much in his interest. It would give him more resources as a domestic politician and, of course, make China a greater player in the world. So in that sense, of course, he wants to transform the Chinese economy. But he's not fully an economic thinker. And so he doesn't necessarily translate that desire for reform into a set of institutions and checks on power and authority and incentive structures that really motivate people in the right way. And so I think he's very attached to the long-term objective of reform, but has only the weakest of attachments to the practical upfront measures that need to be taken and the costs that need to be paid on the way to get there. Maybe there's no need to, or maybe there's no real pressure to do so because the economy is still growing at a sort of a healthy 6, 6.5%. Uh, consumer spending is up, uh, service industries are picking up. Um, if you talk to people in China, they often actually seem quite content with the way things are going. I think that's true to a certain extent. But the problem is, if you talk to economists, they usually don't agree with that. And I think one of the reasons is that the current growth trajectory really depends on a very large state investment effort with a rapid expansion of credit and debt. And the buildup of credit and debt is not being checked. And so it's not going to collapse tomorrow, certainly not. But at the same time, it's simply impossible for this particular growth model to be extended into the future. So where do you see China going from here? And how can that, what you've described as a sort of broken policymaking process, how can that be fixed? Well, I'm not sure how they'll fix it. And they won't necessarily fix it by making it better. I mean, they can fix the broken policy process by making it worse, by making it more constraining, but more effective. But I think the problem right now is, as you say, things are working okay right now. The problems are not super immediate. We don't see any kind of immediate crisis on the horizon, but the problems are accumulating. People are starting to think about the next party Congress, which is just over a year from now. And so I think we're probably going to see more or less continuity until about that time, but then quite a bit of change in one concentrated period in late 2017. That begs the question, what kind of change? Yeah. Well, of course, we don't know. I, I think it is possible that Xi Jinping, having completed some other parts of his political agenda, might focus a little bit more on economics and say, ah, you know, I do have to make a bigger effort on this part, but it's not guaranteed. You know, it could also be, you know, kind of movement away from 
further globalization. I think Xi Jinping and his advisors will read the Brexit vote as still another indication that global free markets and the set of institutions associated with them are not reliable and are not particularly attractive. And so that's a bad thing for the economic change process in China. So I think we have to accept that the future is open without saying that that necessarily means that it's going to get better. The future is open. Barry Norton, thanks for sharing your insights and analysis on China's economic policies. That was Professor Barry Norton of the University of California, San Diego. His paper for the Marics Conference is called Shifting Structures and Processes in Economic Policymaking at the Center. The essay is published as part of the Marics Papers on China. The link is on our website. With that, thanks for joining me today. Tune in again soon. I'm Ruth Kirchner. Thanks for listening and goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merrick's.org.